You're listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast, a recording of the Sunday sermons from Christ Church Toronto. Christ Church Toronto is a new church in Toronto's East End that seeks to practice the ancient Christian faith today. We would love for you to join us in the future, but until then, please turn your attention to the scripture reading. The scripture reading this morning is from Philippians 2, 1-4. Christ's example of humility. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord and one of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is the word of the Lord for our church and is given for our good. Well, thank you, Xavier. Let's pray before we spend some time reflecting on this passage. Our Heavenly Father, who is like you? You are always watching out for our needs above your own. And at this time, as we open up your word, we humbly ask that you would send your spirit to use this, your word, to minister to our needs, whatever they might be, and that you would speak clearly to us through this, your word. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, one of the most watched speeches on YouTube is actually a commencement address given by a Navy admiral named William H. McRaven. He gives the address to the University of Texas graduating class in 2014. The speech has been watched millions of times and is referenced often. He begins the speech by saying, if you want to change the world, graduates, start off by making your bed. He continues, if you make your bed every morning, you'll have accomplished the first task of the day. It will give you a small sense of pride and will encourage you to do another task and another and another. By the end of the day, that one task accomplished will have turned into many tasks completed. Making your bed will also reinforce the fact that the little things in life matter. If you can't do the little things right, you'll never be able to do the big things right. The speech, as simple as it sounds, went viral. It eventually turned into a book which became a bestseller. Well, in this passage, the Apostle Paul is writing to this church he started in Philippi, the first church started in Europe, the first people in Europe to say Jesus is the King and to commit to believing this good news and spreading this good news throughout the Roman Empire. And in the previous chapter, Paul has encouraged the church to stand firm in the battle that they find themselves in, to strive side by side, to not be frightened by the enemy, and to face suffering with courage, to delight even in the gift of suffering that they get, that they get a chance to suffer alongside of and with Christ. And at this point in the letter, Paul now turns his attention not so much to the enemy out there, but the enemy that is potentially within the community. And that enemy is disunity within the church. And in this passage, it is almost as though Paul is saying to the church, after giving them this large rally cry about the battle that is in front of them, about the grandiose task that has been given to them by God, 
it's almost as though Paul is saying, if you want to change the world for Jesus Christ, if you want to be part of the revolution, if you want to join in with the toppling down of the powers of evil and sin and death, here's what you got to do. Look out for the interests of others before your own. This, this habit is almost like a critical habit to the Apostle Paul. It's almost like making your bed. A habit that if you start to build into your life, if you are committed to watching out for the good of others beyond your own, the church will gradually be transformed and become that uh, organization which spreads this good news of King Jesus throughout the whole world. This passage is all about this unity the church is to have, this solidarity that this organization called the church is to embody wherever it finds itself. And what I want to look at this morning is first why Christian unity is so important to the Apostle Paul, then what prevents Christian unity, and finally how Christians can grow in unity. So first I want to ask, why is Christian unity, why is Christian solidarity so important to Paul? And what you need to know is we're looking only at four verses this morning, but it's actually one long Greek sentence. And in the sentence, the verb doesn't actually come till verse 2, where Paul says, complete my joy. He even gives this as a command. And what in the world does this mean? How are we to complete or fulfill Paul's joy? If you've been part of the church or have some sort of understanding of the church, you might think Paul is going to say, complete my joy by spending hours in prayer, you know, complete my joy by being so disciplined and have rigorous Bible studies, complete my joy by spreading this news of Jesus through evangelism, tell all of your neighbors about what God has done for the world in Jesus, complete my joy by growing that church large and having an impactful ministry in the city, feeding all the poor, this will complete my joy. No, All those things are good, and I think Paul would be proud to read about all those things happening. But what does Paul say in verses 1 and 2? He says, if you really want to make me happy, if you really want me to be elated as I sit here in prison, if you really want to thrill me, what I would love to hear is that you are of the same mind, having the same love, being in in a full accord and of one mind. You see, Paul sees this habit, being of of the same mind, being of the same love, this sort of commitment as a chain reaction which will put the church into a healthy, healthy situation to be the blessing that God has called the church to be. So what is Paul saying? He's saying this. He starts the passage by saying, if you know anything about the comforts that come when you are united with uh, Christ... If you know anything about the love that you experience by being part of God's family, if you know anything about the Spirit directing you, if you have any sympathy for me and for my ministry, if if any of these things are true of you, then here's what you've got to be committed to. Being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, being of one mind. That, that is how Paul's joy will be complete, as the church embodies something like a beautiful solidarity around Jesus Christ. For Paul, the absolutely non-negotiable of any group calling themselves the people of Jesus is unity, this solidarity around King Jesus. Not a unity for unity's sake, but a unity that has at its center Jesus as King and the advancement of His kingdom. Paul is saying, what really takes the breath away of the watching world 
What really crushes cynicism about organized religion that is pervasive wherever you find yourself throughout history is when people who formerly could not stand one another come together in the same room, young and old, men and women, ugly, beautiful, rich, poor, sitting next to one another, singing and celebrating and saying that Jesus is the King, that whatever Jesus says, this is what is true. Jesus is the one we celebrate. This will crush cynicism. This will take the breath away of the divided watching world. Maybe you could imagine Paul's point this way, why he's so passionate about unity around Christ. It's, uh, imagine yourself having an argument with your friend, a friend, about what is the, most, uh, the, the best sport in the world. And you find yourself going back and forth, sparring about various, various sports. And your friend says, without question, the best sport in the world, the sport that the majority of the people in this world know is the greatest sport deep down, is the, is the sport of polo. Now, how would you respond? My guess is you, like me, have very little clue about what happens in polo other than you have to essentially have millions of dollars to enjoy playing this game. You'd say something like, look, you're nuts. I'm glad you like polo. It seems to be a very unique sport. It looks fun. Horses are beautiful. But you're nuts. There's no way you can say polo competes with something like soccer. Just the pure volume of people who play it on any given day and the global reach of soccer makes it the greatest sport that exists. You'd have to say that. To the majority of people, soccer is the best sport that exists. Paul is saying something similar. He's saying, this is why unity is important. There's all kinds of little religious groups, very devout, very committed to their particular causes all over the Roman Empire. But he's telling the church in Philippi, if you want to make sure people know that our story is the true story for the whole world, you've got to remind yourself that we have to keep Jesus Christ as our focus and stay unified around him, that he's the true king in heaven and earth. And the way he demonstrates and displays his greatness is by more and more people submitting to him, calling him King Jesus, doing what he calls them to do. As this unity is displayed, it becomes obvious that Jesus is the king of all kings. He's greater than all other religions. He's greater than all other ways of living in this world. So why is unity so important to the Apostle Paul? It's so important because it displays to the watching world that Jesus is actually the transcendent king. He transcends geography. He transcends uh, sort of geopolitical groups. He even transcends time. But now let's ask, what prevents Christian unity? Because at the end of the day, who would disagree Everyone wants unity, or wants some type of unity. What in the world stands in the way and prevents unity? And what prevents unity is found in two Greek words, which are found in verse 3. Paul writes, do nothing out of rivalry or conceit. Rivalry and conceit, there they are. Now, what prevents unity? Paul says it's rivalry and conceit. These two things are toxic in any church to the church pursuing unity. Now, these two words are important, and I think one of them is easier to understand than the other. When I say rivalry, I think you understand a sort of war to be better than one another, a war to be more recognized than the other, a sort of pull and push to get, gain attention at the expense of another. We understand what rivalry is. Maybe the more difficult concept is, is conceit. And this actually comes from a compound Greek word. I don't often quote Greek words, but it's from this word kenodoxa, 
I say it because you probably, when you hear the word doxa, you think doxology. It means glory in Greek. Keno doxa means something like vain glory or empty glory. And Paul is saying this is what is going to prevent unity in the church. This vain glory that exists within each individual human, this pursuit of vain glory, which overwhelms and consumes individuals, will eventually come in and poison Christian community. These words, rivalry and vain glory, teach us something. And it's this, that we all hunger for glory. Maybe I could say it this way. We all hunger for something like attention. Maybe I can make it even more practical. We all want our posts to get a whole bunch of likes, especially when they're pictures of ourselves. We're deeply afraid of living in the world in which we actually don't matter, that we don't make an impact. We want to know that we have substance, that we have weight, that we have glory, that we're important, and we spend all our life captivated by this pursuit. The actor Robert Downey Jr., uh, earlier in his career, while he was battling with substance abuse, once said this, Mediocrity is my biggest fear. I'm not afraid of total failure, because I don't think that will happen. I'm not afraid of success, because that's better than failure. It's being in the middle that scares me. This is what we fear. This is, we want true glory, true greatness, and the idea of pursuing and gathering it in such a way, the fear of not having it, absolutely crushes us. The Pulitzer Prize winning author Ernest Becker, in his Denial of Death, argues that humans are literally split in two. We have an awareness, first, of our splendid uniqueness in the way that we stick out from the rest of creation, that we tower with a type of majesty, maybe a glory, we could say. But he also argues that in, in this book that our spl we're split into two because we have this awareness of our greatness, but we also know we are going to go back into the ground. We have a keen awareness of our mortality. And throughout the book, Becker argues that it's a terrifying dilemma that we are left in, that we're stuck in the middle of, wrestling between knowing that we have uh, some kind of uh, ticking time bomb in our life. One day, we will come to an end, and yet knowing that we have some kind of majesty and glory that resides inside of us. The whole human life, according to Becker, is wrestling with the inevitability of death in light of these feelings of glory that we have. Becker's work has spun off a whole school of, of psychology. You can even find therapists in our city that practice a type of terror management therapy, that promote a type of self-esteem that will help you push through feeling as though you lack glory. But we all know that being true to yourself, trying to build up self-esteem helps for a season, but it doesn't ultimately solve the deeper longings that are inside of us. What we find in the Bible, what the Bible argues, is that we are in cre created with incomprehensible dignity. We have uh, incredible glory by virtue of the fact that we are made in God's image. And that glory was marred when we chose to rebel against God's ways. When we, we chose to re reject the path that was laid out before us, we found ourselves polluted. And though we still manifest glimmers of this glory, it's not the everyday story in our life. But where do we find this glory? 
How are we going to find it? Well, the problem, Paul is saying, is that we find it in other people, in our jobs. We find it in pursuing uh, glory through our reputation, through our academic achievement, achievements. Paul says that this kind of pursuit of glory is a type of vain glory, a fake glory. It's a polluted glory that will not last long inside of us. And Paul is saying, when a community finds themselves, if even one member is caught up in rivalry and conceit, jealous of the work of someone else, jealous of the attention of someone else, or desperate to get the attention of the whole community, desperate to be the center of conversation, when that happens, this undercuts what Christian community is all about. This is what ultimately destroys Christian community. Well, let's conclude by asking, how do we grow in Christian unity? Where do we find the power to pursue not vain glory, but true glory? To move away from rivalry towards community? Well, you see, most people have a desire, these sort of benevolent moments in which we want to see unity grow in our church, or even within our city, or within any sort of humanitarian group you're a part of. But where do we find a unity that lasts? A unity that transcends generations. We'll look closely at the second half of verses 3 and 4. Paul says, Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his or her own interests, but also to the entrance of others. Here it is. Paul's saying, You want your make your bed sort of keystone habit that will change the world? Go out of your way to count others more significant than yourself. Be curious and more interested about others. This is like making your bed. If you can just cultivate this habit, good things will flow out of this. This is what Paul is saying to you. This is how we grow in this type of Christian solidarity and unity. But where do we get the power to live that way? Isn't there a reason to be concerned that maybe we'll go too far, we'll be taken advantage of? What about self-care? Well, we can only live this way if we know that someone else has watched out for our interests above his own. If we know that someone else has relentlessly pursued our good above his own good. And this is what the story of the gospel is all about. That for creatures who had polluted their glory, who had stained glory, who were gobbling up and trying to capture and lay hold of uh, these, these fake glory uh, shields all around the earth, for a people like that, God sent Jesus to pursue us. And in Jesus, true glory was manifest on the earth, a human who lived a truly glorious life. And he lived a life that we were called to live. He followed the path that was laid out for us. And he gave up his life as a sacrificial death. And God looks down from heaven and sees the work of Jesus and says, There is true glory. And as he looks upon Jesus, Jesus says, don't forget my people. <laughs> as you look at me, look at my people. I came to rescue them. I came to save them and deliver them. I came that they might find true glory and being tied up and united with me, being citizens in my kingdom. Paul is saying, if the story of Jesus is true, then you have the resources to pursue this type of unity. Listen, this is the good news of the gospel. God has relentlessly laid aside his own interests and pursued your good, even above his own. And in so doing, he has provided a salvation for you who would turn, lay hold of, and trust Jesus Christ. This is the story of the gospel. Your sins can be forgiven. True glory can be found as you follow after this Christ.
Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ChristChurchToronto.ca or email us at info at ChristChurchToronto.ca.